The last night, Kimmy and I, we had the great joy of unpacking a toy nativity set with Anna, our one-year-old daughter. And isn't it amazing to experience Christmas through the eyes of your kids? That's our favorite part so far of Christmas this year, to experience that and enjoy that and to tell Anna the story of Christmas. That, that, that Christmas is, is just that. It's a story. It's history, but it is a story that can be told. And we take out the little pieces and we tell Anna about Mary and how the angel comes to Mary. And then the angel came and spoke to Joseph and they went to Bethlehem and they had baby Jesus. And every time we would take one of those little pieces of the toy nativity, we got to tell her a little bit about the Bible's story of how God sent his son, Jesus, into the world. And like I said, having Christmas through the eyes of a child gives us a new perspective. And for us, thinking about the story of Christmas gave us, as parents, Kimmy and I, a new perspective just on the beauty that, that there is a story behind God sending his son. That oftentimes when we read the Bible, sometimes we just treat the Bible like a disjointed collection of sayings. Verses that we can Google or verses that we find on furniture, pieces of decoration or uh, little passages that maybe we just hear in isolation on the radio or during a sermon, and we don't understand that it is unified. That all those verses, all those chapters, all those books, they're actually working together into a larger, grander story of salvation that God is weaving together? Do you ever struggle to really appreciate the Bible that way? Sometimes we can see the Bible as just really a library of separated letters or books that, again, we read them in isolation, but we don't understand how Colossians is related to James or how the book of Acts is related to the book of Exodus or how the New Testament is related to the Old Testament. We must remember that this book that we have is not just a collection of, of separate sayings and books, but it is one book. And it is a book that God has given us that tells us two main things. Number one, this book reveals to us who God is, his character, his attributes. But this one single book is also, it's a story. Sometimes we call it the redemptive narrative. From Genesis to Revelation, how everything that God is revealing is working out the larger story of how God fixes the problem that began in the garden. How God fixes the problem of sin. And I think sometimes we're afraid of seeing the Bible as a story because we think that may make us think that it is fictional. And of course, the Bible isn't fictional, and we don't want to treat it like it's fictional, so sometimes we treat it as if it shouldn't be a story. But God has revealed his word. He's, he's written the book of the Bible, so much of it actually, in narrative. With highs and lows and characters and struggles and developing themes that are all building up and working together and culminating in Jesus Christ. And as Kimmy and I were setting up that nativity, and as you may even look at a nativity like this in your home. Sometimes we just see those people as props, as somewhat unimportant. Okay, they're shepherds. 
Okay, there's the wise men. Okay, there's a stable. There's the town of Bethlehem. And we just say, well, they're, they're, they're just there. They're just details. What we're going to do in this month's Christmas message, it's called nativity because the word nativity means origin. The origins from which something came. And what we're going to look at is we're going to spend every week focusing on one of the details of the nativity. One of the characters, one of the places, one of the things that almost all of us might have set up in our living room right now. And we're going to talk about the biblical origin of each of the main characters of the nativity. And how all throughout the Bible, starting in Genesis all through the Old Testament, leading into the New Testament, God was preparing a plan. He was developing a theme. He was prophesying and predicting the role that each of them would have in the sending of God's Son, Jesus, to save the world from its sin. So this morning, the first detail of the nativity, as we look at the story of God's Word and how it culminates in the coming of Christ, the first detail that we're going to look at is Bethlehem. Bethlehem itself, the, the stable with, with the star, O oh, little town of Bethlehem, how still we see thee lie. Again, that word is so often just a lyric. It's just a prop that we see in a nativity. But we're going to start in Genesis, and this morning for the next half hour, we're going to look at how from the very beginning, Bethlehem wasn't just a circumstantial place where Christ happened to be born, but it was part of God's plan from the start. It was part of God's story from the beginning, and it plays a purpose. And that by seeing the Bible as a unified story, it should impact the way that we see God and his word, and it should impact the way that we approach God's word this morning. So turn with me to start out in Genesis chapter 35, as we look at the biblical story of Bethlehem. As you're turning to Genesis, you might see I have a few slides here on the screen. We'll do just some background on the town of Bethlehem. The name Bethlehem is made up of two Hebrew words, meaning house of bread. Bethlehem, house of bread, is what Bethlehem was called, probably for all of the grain that was grown in that area. Grain was probably likely stored in this town. The city of Bethlehem existed before the Israelites moved in. It was a Canaanite city. The Israelites did not build it. Uh, none of the Israelite characters founded this city. It was already there, and it was part of the conquest that happened during the time of Joshua. It was only a few miles south of Jerusalem. It was not even really considered a suburb. It was just a little dinky town outside of the main city of Jerusalem that had little consequence to it. I have a couple of pictures showing what modern Bethlehem looks like. This is semi-modern. This is from the late 1800s, but if you were to go there today, that skyline, you can go back to the previous image, uh, looks still pretty much the same. That's the church of the nativity that exists right there in that middle spire. You see the buildings just set on this little hill. Everything around Bethlehem is just valleys. Bethlehem sits on this ridge known as the Judean highlands. And so it has this very important kind of vantage point looking over 
the valleys of the surrounding areas, which you can see in the next picture. This would be a view from the top of Bethlehem looking out at the fertile fields and the valleys. A very rural place is how we should understand Bethlehem. Not a politically important place, not a place that for any other reason you would expect this city to have importance on the world stage, but from the book of Genesis itself, specifically Genesis chapter 35, we see that again and again God is weaving this story of Bethlehem as it appears throughout Scripture. In Genesis chapter 35, we see Jacob, and he's traveling from the city of Bethel to what happens to be the city of Bethlehem. Jacob is traveling south, and it says that he's coming close to Bethlehem, and it just so happens that in Genesis chapter 35, specifically in verse 11, as Jacob is traveling to Bethlehem, we see for the first time God gives him a very unique promise as he approaches Bethlehem. Look at Genesis chapter 35, verse 11, and look at what God says to Jacob. It says that, And God said to him, I am God Almighty, El Shaddai is the name in Hebrew here. And he tells Jacob, Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you. And here for the very first time, God says this. And he says, And kings shall come from your own body. This is the first time that God gives Jacob this promise. As he's walking towards Bethlehem, God chooses at that point not only to have Moses, who wrote Genesis, to point out that Jacob is approaching Bethlehem, but for God specifically to give Jacob the promise that, guess what? Kings are going to come from you. This is important because from the very beginning, God always intended to give his people a king. We often misunderstand that concept from 1 Samuel. The Israelites were sinful in demanding a king from God, but they weren't sinful because they wanted a king. They were sinful because they wanted their own king like the kings that the other nations had. They didn't want the king that God was going to provide. Remember what Samuel said, man looks at the outside, but God looks at the inside. God's plan all the way starting from Genesis was to give his people a king. A king was part of God's story. It was part of God's plan, but it was one specific king. And God told Jacob as he's approaching Bethlehem that it would be a king that would be born from him. Which is surprising because if you scroll down in verse 16, you might even see in the heading of your Bible that after God gives this promise, what happens to Jacob's beloved wife? She dies. And she actually dies close to Bethlehem. Verse 16, it says that they journeyed from Bethel, which actually means house of God, and when they were still some distance from Ephrath, or Ephrat, which that's just another name for Bethlehem. Sometimes you'll see Ephrata and Bethlehem be two names for the same village given in the Old Testament. Probably, very likely, they were two very, very ancient separate settlements that both grew bigger and just merged into each other. But we see those two names used interchangeably. And it says that as he's getting close to there, Rachel went into labor, and she had hard labor, and the labor was at its hardest. The midwife said to her, Do not fear, for you have another son. 
And as her soul was departing, for she was dying, she called his name Ben-Oni, which means son of sorrow. We know that his name is later going to be called Benjamin, son of my right hand is what Jacob calls him. But Rachel dies in verse 19, and it specifically says that this is near the city of Bethlehem, and that Jacob set up a pillar over her tomb. And the last thing I want you to notice before we move on from this passage, that as Rachel dies, which seemingly flies in the face of God's promise of a king to Jacob, because Rachel was the beloved wife, she's the one that had Joseph and Benjamin, you would expect the king to come from Rachel. But she dies, and as Jacob is burying her, look at verse 21. After he buries her, it says that he pitched his tent beyond the Tower of Eder. You should probably underline that. Maybe highlight that, the Tower of Eder. That word Eder means flock in Hebrew. This is the Tower of Flocks. It was a tower that shepherds would build. They would stand upon it so that they could look over their sheep and that so they could protect their herds. And you might think, well, why is this important? Well, the Bible decides it's important because it decides to tell us this but the second reason why it's important is because this tower that is mentioned is only going to appear one other time in the rest of all of Scripture. It's going to be mentioned here in Genesis, and it's not going to be mentioned ever again in the Bible except for one other place. And right now it's mentioned in Genesis. And it wants us to know in Genesis that Bethlehem is a place of promise. That's your first point. Bethlehem is a place of promised kings. That Bethlehem, when the Israelite people thought of Bethlehem, they didn't think much of it except for they would have known from Genesis that it was near Bethlehem that God promised Jacob a king before Rachel died. So when people would have thought of Bethlehem in Old Testament times, they would have associated it with the promised king. And this isn't happening in Luke chapter 2. This isn't happening in Matthew chapter 1. This is happening in the book of Genesis. God had a story from the beginning. Turn with me now to Ruth chapter 1. Most people don't associate Ruth with the nativity. We don't often think of Ruth as being part of the story of Christmas. But Ruth is one of the most important books of the Old Testament. Ruth is a bridge book. It's a shame that we often diminish Ruth as just a topic for women's conferences and women's devotionals, which are still so good and can be so helpful. But there is a role that the book of Ruth plays that is so important to the larger story of the Bible. Because remember what God said to Jacob. God gave such beautiful promises to Jacob. He promised Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. He promised them land and blessing. And he promised them descendants. And he promised them a king. And remember what happens right after Genesis. We have the book of Exodus. They don't get land yet. They don't get all of the descendants yet. They certainly don't get a king yet. They get a pharaoh instead. And they're in bondage. And God has to redeem them. He has to bring them out of their slavery and, and bring them into the promised land. But there's almost this hiatus that seems to happen in God's story when we get to Exodus and 
Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy and Joshua. Because now God's putting his focus not on the king that is going to come from Jacob, but he's now putting his focus on a Levite, Moses. And Moses is now functioning as a mediator, and it's full of wandering, and it's full of uh, slavery, and, and it's full of war and conquest. And Moses, he has sons, and none of the sons replace Moses as a leader of Israel, so we know that Moses can't be the king. And after Moses, we see that Joshua is raised up as a leader, and Joshua dies, and we get to the book of Judges, where Joshua dies, and there's no descendant, there's no king. This king that was promised at Bethlehem to Jacob, God hasn't revealed him yet, and so the book of Judges is just that. It's a book of Judges. It's a book of people for a short temporary time imperfectly ruling God's people. And one of the most repeated phrases in Judges is that every man did what was right in his own eyes. One of the most important parts of the book of Judges is that it shows the need of God's people for a promised king. That every judge that would try to lead them, even if they were successful for a temporary time, ultimately would either die or fail in some way. And so Judges is a ruthless book. It's a Wild West book in the time of Israel, where Bethlehem, even in Judges leading up to Ruth, is mentioned, but only in negative ways. If you were to read in your personal time Judges chapter 17, verses 7 and 9, you would hear about a Levite who creates a shrine to idols, and he's described as a man from Bethlehem. One of the worst stories in Israel's history actually takes place in Judges 19 where there is a man who takes a concubine and it says that she's from Bethlehem. She's a Bethlehemite woman. And that Israelites all through the night abused her and raped her and took advantage of her so much so that by the time morning came, this is actually in the Bible, this Bethlehem woman is just laying dead on the threshold of her master's house, and he wouldn't open the door for her. She was there all night, and she's, she's dead by morning. And in Judges, this time in history, when people would think of Bethlehem, it wasn't just now this place where God had promised kings. Now it was this place where a man set up a shrine to idols and where this terrible, awful situation with this poor woman took place. It, was, it had negative connotations. There was evil happening in God's land because God's people lacked a king. But then we get to Ruth, chapter 1. And we find that in Ruth, chapter 1, the spotlight is put back on the city of Bethlehem. It says that in the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi. And the names of their two sons were Malon and Kilian. They were Ephratites. Notice that name again, Ephratites. That's another word for Bethlehemites. From Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and they remained there. Suddenly, the stage of God's story in the book of Ruth is brought back to Bethlehem. Because here's what the book of Ruth does. The book of Ruth ties a line in Israel's history 
connecting where the Israelites are now, after the Exodus, after the time of Judges, without a king, it ties a line back to God's promises in Genesis. It is a tying, it is a connecting of chapters between God's promise for a king in Genesis and the fulfillment of that promise, which is going to begin in the book after Ruth, which is 1 Samuel, where God, through Samuel, anoints David as his king. But Ruth is going to serve as the bridge for that. Because if you look at Ruth chapter 1, verses 16 through 19, Ruth says that she's going to go to Bethlehem. She says to her mother-in-law, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you, for where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. And if you skip down to verse 19, it says that the two of them, they went on until they came to Bethlehem. That's the stage of, of this book. That's the setting where this takes place. And if there is any theme that Ruth tells us as a book as a whole is that Ruth is a book about kindness. In fact, the word in Hebrew is loving kindness, kesed. It's the same word used in Psalm 23 to say, surely love and mercy, goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. That's the way we understand, but the word is actually loving kindness. It's that Hebrew word for goodness, for, for mercy, for peace that someone wants to show someone as a redeemer. You might remember the story of Ruth that Boaz functions as a kinsman redeemer to Ruth. He functions as a family member who is going to take care of another person, who's going to protect her, who's going to provide for her. We see this in Ruth chapter 2, verse, verses 13 and 14. Ruth says to Boaz, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and have spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. It says that at mealtime, Boaz said to her, come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in wine. So he, she sat beside the reapers and he passed her a roasted grain. And, to, and she ate until she was satisfied and she had some left over. Quite a contrast from the concubine woman from Bethlehem described in Judges. This association of Bethlehem with ruthlessness and with tragedy and with abuse is now being redeemed in the book of Ruth, where now Bethlehem is being associated as a place of kindness, as a place of a redeemer, someone who by their own volition and their own goodness decides to mercifully take care of another person, even though Ruth, remember, was technically a Gentile. Boaz still decided to treat her as if she was part of his family. You may think, well, why does all this matter? Skipping to the end of Ruth, it matters because Ruth, taking place in Bethlehem, points to the birth of the Messiah. In verse 13 in chapter 4, it says, So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife, and he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. If you were to look at the Septuagint, the translation of this in Greek, which was a translation that took place between the writings of the Old and the New Testament, if you were to look at the wording that is used here in Ruth chapter 4, it is almost identical to the wording that Luke uses to describe the birth of Jesus in the New Testament. Look at how this birth taking place from Ruth is described in verse 14. He's, uh, this person is described as a redeemer, 
and may his name be renowned in all of Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. I'm reading from verses 14 and 15 in Ruth chapter 4. This is the son that was born to Ruth in Bethlehem. The birth of Jesus in Bethlehem was not the first birth recorded in Scripture in that city. That would be in the book of Ruth when she has a baby, and he's described as a redeemer, one who restores life. He's also a baby which Ruth didn't name this child. Other people named it, very similar to Jesus. It says in verse 17 that the women of the neighborhood gave him a name. And what was this baby's name from Ruth? His name was Obed, verse 17 tells us. And it says that Obed was the father of Jesse, the father of David. And you look at the verses that finish the book, you see that there's a genealogy. It starts with a man named Perez, and it ends with a boy named David. Perez was the son of Judah. Perez was descended from Judah, and Judah was descended from Jacob, the same Jacob that God at Bethlehem told him that kings would come from you. Moses wasn't that king. Joshua wasn't that king. None of the judges were that kings, were those kings. Had God forgotten his promises? Is God a God who forgets? Maybe even in your life you wonder that. Has God forgotten about me? Is God a God who his promises are only for the times of the Bible and not for 2023? If you feel that way today, remember that there were people back even in the Old Testament during the times of Ruth and the judges who felt that way. But at Bethlehem and through the story of Ruth, we see that God had not forgotten about his promises to Jacob and that his plan was to fulfill his promise of a king to Jacob at Bethlehem through the birth of a boy named David at Bethlehem. That's why David can call Bethlehem his city. That's why when we turn to Luke chapter 2 and it's described, Bethlehem is described as the city of David, it could be called that because David was born in this town, in this village, simply because of what happened to his great-grandmother, Ruth, and the loving kindness and the redemption that God showed to her through Boaz. That leads us to our second point, which is that Bethlehem in the Bible is described as a place of redemption. The book of Ruth is a book of redemption. It's a book of kindness. That word redemption means to buy back or to take care of, to bring someone into your own home, which is what Boaz did to Ruth. And so Bethlehem, it's not just a place of promised kings, but it is redeemed. It is restored from being a town and judges associated with abuse and violence to now being restored to a town associated with hope and with loving kindness. It's that same kind of restoration and redemption that God wants to do with you that you are a person who is full of sin. You are a person who is full of violence. You are a person who is full of hate and deceit. But just as God changed the meaning and the reputation of the town of Bethlehem, he also wants to change the name and the identity of you from an enemy of God to an adopted son of God. And Bethlehem is a reminder of that. By the way, all of this that we're doing right now, none of this is symbolism. 
It can be very tempting as we look at the Bible to think of these little threads that we're weaving throughout the Old Testament and think, well, we're just looking symbolically at God's Word and, and that this series is going to be us looking at a camel or a donkey or a sheep and figuring out some kind of deeper symbolic meaning to give us some kind of inspiration. That's not what we're doing here. What we're looking at is how the Bible, leading up to Luke chapter 2, was already talking about the details of the nativity. That the shepherds, Bethlehem, the Magi, all these aspects of the birth of Christ, they didn't just pop up accidentally or suddenly in the New Testament, but that they are a fulfillment of prophecy that is being built in the Old Testament. Turn with me, Matt, now to Micah. As we go to our third point, Micah is considered one of the minor prophets, not because he's an unimportant prophet, but because Micah is one of the smaller books of prophecy in the Old Testament. Micah is where we get one of the most beautiful predictions about the town of Bethlehem. Micah chapter 4 Verse 6, it says, In that day, declares the Lord, I will assemble the lame and gather those who have been driven away and those whom I have afflicted. He's talking about hope again. And the lame I will make the remnant and those who are cast off a strong nation. This is verse 7. And the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion. And for this time forth and forevermore, these beautiful promises of how God is someday going to send a king to rule over his people. But then look at verse 8, and look at what is mentioned in verse 8. Out of nowhere, out of the blue, hundreds of years later, a location is described in Micah chapter 4, verse 8, as God is talking about the coming king for his people. He says in verse 8, And you, O tower of the flock, hill of the daughter of Zion, to you, Shall it come? That location, the tower of the flock, the tower of Eder, that's the same place where Rachel was buried in Genesis chapter 35. This is only the second time in all of Scripture that the place is mentioned, and it just so happens to be mentioned when God is promising a king. And he describes that king of coming as coming to the same place where God initially gave the promise to Jacob. Look at Micah chapter 5, verse 2. You might recognize this verse. Chapter 5, verse 2 of Micah. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephratah, you who are little to be, too, too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth from me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old and from ancient days. God is weaving this story together of prophecy and prediction, saying this little town is where the great king will come. Your third point is that Bethlehem is a place of a promised Messiah. That this chosen person to be king, this Messiah that people in the Old Testament were waiting for and longing for, that the Pharisees were longing for, this person to bring peace, they were looking to Bethlehem as the place where that would come. So now let's turn to Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. The people are waiting for a Messiah. They're waiting for a king. And instead, they get a Caesar. 
Instead, they get an empire. Instead, they become exiled and they become conquered by larger Gentile powers. And there's no Messiah yet. There's no king. There's no king from this tower of flocks. There's no king from David. There's no king from God's promise to Jacob. And in fact, it says that in those days, chapter 2, verse 1, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus. That word Augustus is not his name. His real name was Octavius. Augustus was a title that meant full of God's glory. That's what the word Augustus means. Octavius called himself king full of God's glory. And Octavius, Caesar Augustus, was most famous in history for what's called the Pax Romana. Pax Romana means Roman peace. He was famous for being this person who united all of the world under what he considered to be peace, but was really just forceful domination under his rule. But it was during this time of peace that he decided to take a census, thinking, look how great I am, look how full of God's glory I am, as Augustus, he might say to himself. Look how I have united the world under peace. Look at how I have arrived. I will take a census. And God shows us that he had bigger plans. That there was a king full of God's glory that still needed to come. That there was a peace on earth that had not yet arrived. And ironically, it is through this sinful, non-Christ-honoring Caesar that a census is made, a man from the north named Joseph, who just happens to be related to Ruth and to Obed and to Jesse and to David, goes back to the town that his family is from, which just so happens to be the town of Bethlehem. And he takes Mary with him, and you know what happens. She's registered, they're registered. She's betrothed to be married. She's with child. There's no room in the inn. She gives birth to a firstborn son, wraps him in swaddling cloths, all in this town of Bethlehem. And as you look down, it says that there were shepherds out in the field, just like those fields, maybe even those same exact fields that we saw on the screen earlier. They're out in the fields, and what comes? An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone all around them, and they were filled with great fear, and the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord, and this will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with an angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace. Peace among those with whom he is pleased. And so the shepherds get up and they obey the angels and they go to the little town of Bethlehem. Not because there was anything special about Bethlehem, but there was something special about the God who had a plan for Bethlehem. Who had a plan that through Bethlehem, through all these stories across centuries, through Ruth and through Jesse, through Boaz, through the death of Rachel, through centuries of hardship and suffering, 
There was still a plan and a hope of salvation that would take place in that little town. And there is still a hope of salvation for you today if you are without Christ Jesus. That you may come here this morning feeling like that little town of Bethlehem, unimportant, disregarded, full of suffering, full of abuse. God has a plan for you. And that plan concerns only the peace that can come through only his son, Jesus Christ. Bethlehem, it's not just a place of promised kings. It's not just a place of promised redemption. It's not just a place of promised Messiah. It is also a place of promised peace. That all of this works together so that God can have peace with his people who were once his enemies, that God can restore peace with them. So when you think of Bethlehem, when you see that stable, when you set up the nativity, when it's Christmas Eve and you're reading through Luke chapter 2, when you're telling your kids and your grandkids the story of how Jesus was born and you get to the little town of Bethlehem, don't just treat it like another little town or another lyric from a song. See it as a beautiful and remarkable reminder that God has a plan and that his plan for you is to have peace with him through his son, Jesus Christ. And then tell everyone about it because of what God did to the little town of Bethlehem. Pray with me.